All right, here we go. Never thought I would pull this one off. Here we go. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute new government. Thomas Jefferson, 1776. All right. There is a sacred text. That sacred text is the Bible. That's a sacred text. And then there are inspired texts. I don't know if I would say they're sacred, but they're inspired by the Lord, I believe. And I believe one of the most inspired texts that's not the Bible is, in fact, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. For a bunch of farmers who weren't classically trained necessarily, although some of them were, to come up with these things is almost a sign of wonder in itself. And to pull off a revolution against the most powerful military at the time in itself is a sign of wonder. And so I really do believe that that text, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and that declaration by a bunch of colonists is in fact an inspired text. And uh, I believe that either a sacred text, either a sacred text, and also an inspired text, should in fact elicit. I don't. I don't have it. No. Yeah. That's right. Uh, both the a, both a sacred text and an inspired text should elicit a sacred response, a sacred act. I believe that the Bible as sacred and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as inspired should actually create in us a response, a sacred act to do. And if uh, we, we, we take a look at what Thomas Jefferson is in, in fact saying here, he, one thing he says here is uh, that we have a government by the consent of the governed. What does this mean? This is completely new, completely radical. It's that we have rulership by the people and for the people and of the people. It's a democracy that we ourselves tell the government how to rule. It wasn't always the case. Right? In European society, you had the concept of what's known as divine right. The king rules because God said so. It's like, that's, that's a pretty savvy guy to, to pull that one over people. I am the king because God said so. Really? Okay. Now that's going on in Europe from the year 1000 to the year 1776, where a bunch of people living on farms are like, that's kind of funny. We're supposed to listen to you because God said so? Well, God didn't tell me that. Now we got a little shindig. Now we got a little rolling out of what's going to happen. Right? Consent of the governed, right? We never gave our consent to the king. And so it's like, no, that's not how it works. The consent of the government would be a democracy or really, in our system, a constitutional republic. But, you know, a democracy that was so unique by having a, a system where we give the government our consent on how to rule is this. 
It is a very, very sacred event that has just taken place. People get to rule themselves. And what is very powerful about this in a spiritual and a political sense is this, that the people, the people get a government not that they need. They get a government that they deserve. That's, 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 that's the unbelievable element here. Like, we deserve a certain type of government, or rather, we need a certain type of government. The Lord's like, I'm not going to give that to you. In a democracy, you don't get the government that you need. You get the government that you deserve. Your apathy will create a certain government. And your activity and your speaking forth and your sacred acts will produce the government you actually do deserve. That's the beauty of Jefferson, the consent of the government. So we don't get to really complain about our government. Because in fact, you are the government, right? You are giving that power. Another thing that is so brilliant that I see this inspired notion in the Declaration of Independence is this, right? Jefferson says we are endowed by our creator. This is monumental, right? What he's saying here is that there are certain rights that are given to us by God. There are certain rights that are given to you by being simply a human being. And the king, and in England, they are taking those rights away. So, a creator. Rights are given to us by God, not by a king. Not by a government. Right there, that's revolutionary. We have certain rights that are self-evident before all mankind, and we all really know inside of us that there are certain things that are just given to us because we are made in the image of God. And the American rationale behind this by the founding fathers is this, and I, I say this every year to my, 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 my high school kids. The least, one of the least American statements that you can make is this. The government gives us rights. No, that's what the entire war was about. Governments do not give you rights. Not in the American consciousness, not in the American documents. Governments exist to secure the rights that you already have because God has given you these rights as a humanity. And governments are set up, Jefferson says, to not give you rights, but to secure the rights that God has given you. That's a huge difference. And there's a narrative right now, because I teach younger generations, of course, and the narrative is the government is here to give you a right. No, they don't. Not at all. The government is here to protect the right that I already have before God. Right? And this is... Like, I know we're like, oh, yeah, of course. It's the 21st century. Can you imagine 1776 coming up with this and issuing this proclamation to the most powerful nation on the world, and you know that if you lose a war, you're not going to be killed. You're going to be quartered. You're going to be dragged over to London on a boat. They're going to take four horses, and they're going to tie a rope to each appendage, and they're going to yank your body apart, then they'll cut your head off. That's 
That's how fervently a revolutionary generation says, my rights are given to me by God. Some of you can't get up to vote. November 3rd. November 3rd. You get to exercise that right. November 3rd is a manifestation. A manifestation that God gives rights. And governments protect the rights that God has given us. And for to vote is a sacred act. Because it's a manifestation of a truth. Man does not rule me. God does. Man does not rule me. God does. When you vote, you are putting that into the spirit. Now, there is, going off of this, uh, there is a, a concept uh, which America has, has kind of orated, known as American exceptionalism. Now, don't worry, we'll, we'll get into the Bible in a little bit. Yeah, right? American exceptionalism is, uh, is something that actually the Europeans use to critique us. They're like, Americans think they're so special. Right? And so there's a narrative now that, like, America's not so special, we're all special. Look, that's actually gospel truth, right? Everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone is special, right? Uh, but, like, just to kind of clarify the American exceptionalism, it's, it's really defined as this. It is an understanding, or rather a belief or theory, that America is inherently different than other nations. Okay? And I think that is, in fact, true. It may not be that we're just like, it's not that we're better than other people, it's that we have an inherent difference. Now, I am the first to acknowledge, one of the first to acknowledge, that America has done some funky things, some bad things, some, in fact, evil things. Okay? Of course, all have sinned. You know, I mean, usually people are like, well, you know, come on, how can America be so exceptional? Right? Well, one, it's, it's not saying that we're better, it's saying that we're different. There's a, there, right there is, is a difference in intent. A lot of people hear American exceptionalism, we're saying that we are better than other people. But American exceptionalism is like, well, we're inherently different than other nations. And we are. We're, we're, we're all, like, you, you, have to, you have to be like, I don't know what you would have to be to say that we're not inherently different. You probably just haven't traveled anywhere. Right? But even if you take a look at it historically, uh, people usually say, well, America has done faults. I know America has done faults. We all have done faults. Oh, what about slavery? I'm like, I know we've done slavery, but we're inherently different because we are the only nation on planet Earth that says we are going to go to war with our own brothers and sisters and 600,000 people will die so that we can put an end to that sin. No other nation had to pull that trigger. No other nation had to do that. Maybe because there was more of a consensus to eradicate slavery, but listen to this. We are willing to go to war with ourselves and to kill our own people to reclaim the notion that we have human rights before God. That's amazing. 
Slavery is horrible. But it's amazing that a people would say, we're going to set this right. That's different. That's completely different. Yes, America has poverty. Yes, America has inequality of wealth. Actually, in the world, we have the greatest inequality of wealth on planet Earth. Meaning the most wealthy people and disparaged people, the greatest difference. We absolutely have that. We absolutely have inequality. Of course we do. But let me tell you this. I'm not saying that we're better than other people, but we're inherently different when we issue to the world more missionaries than the rest of the world combined. That is amazingly exceptional. That's amazingly inherently different. When we are a beacon to the rest of the world to preach the gospel, more missionaries than the rest of the world through our history. Now usually people will be like, well, you know, South Korea sends out a lot of missionaries. I know, but how did the gospel get to South Korea? American and also British missionaries. We, 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 we have forged wars to end tyranny. World War II being probably the most famous. A, a very a, a other inherently different approach. Uh, America is one of two nations that at the foundation of our nation, we made a covenant with God. Only one of two. One of two. One being Israel. The entire nation was formed because of a covenant with God. And secondly, America, really not so much at the founding of, uh, of, of, of the Constitution per se, but really if you take a look at the, the coming to the nation, particularly in the Northeast, you're going to have Puritans who are like, we are here to be a beacon of light to the world and to share the gospel. And we're claiming this land to be a land that is devoted to God. No other nation has done that except for Israel. In fact, in Israel, they call the United States in Hebrew, Harsot Abrit, which is the land of the covenant. In, in the language of the Hebrew man, right? In the language of the Bible, we are referred to as the land of the covenant. Now, it's a covenant of constitution, but I think spiritually it's also that covenant that the early comers to America said, this shall be a nation, a city upon a hill. England did not have that happen. China did not have that happen. Germany did not have that happen. No other nation. That is inherently different. All right. Another inherently different approach to America. This is just to kind of stir you up this week. America was and is still an experiment. We are an experiment. people. In fact, at the... End of the American Revolution, we, we have the letters, we have the discourse, we have the newspapers. Everyone is like, there's no way that this crazy American experience is going to work. You're getting the hodgepodge, you're getting the, drug, the, the bottom of the barrel of society all coming to a country and they're going to work it out and they're going to rule themselves. There is no way that that's going to work. Fool on you, because it just was like 125, 150 years later that that hodgepodge of people go and save your rear ends from tyranny. So I guess it worked. 
we are inherently different. Look at this. This is the Statue of Liberty. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she. What, what does that mean in modern English? All of you rich, wealthy, pompous, arrogant people, stay in the ancient land. Stay in, stay in the old world. We don't want you. It's crazy. Keep the old world. Keep all of your wealthy, arrogant people. We don't want them. Cries she. With silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Emma Lazarus, November 2nd, tomorrow, 1880. Woo! I think we forget some of this. The vast majority of you out there, if not really all of us, we got here to America underneath some very unforgiving and not nice situations. Got to remind people of that. There are what we call in history push factors. There are things in Europe, there are things in Asia, there are things in Africa, if you're a more modern day African immigrant, that are pushing people out of their homeland. Think about this. Like, whatever your ancestry was, if things were good and hunky-dory, why would you leave and take a boat thousands of miles away to an economy that you don't know what is about? You do not know the language. The only rational reason why someone would come here is because something is not good at home. Right? Because if things were good at home, why would you leave? Poverty pushed people out. War pushed people out. Persecution, particularly of religion, pushed people out to come to America. And the Statue of Liberty is saying, yeah, we want you guys. We don't want the, the wealthy people. We don't want the people to have it all figured out. We want those that are homeless, that are tempest-tossed, the wretched refuse. No other nation has put that de declaration out. Give me all of the bottom of the barrel, have them come into New York City, and we will make the greatest nation that the world has seen, and the most powerful nation, the largest economy the world has ever seen. We will do it. And we did. That is, guys, inherently different. But really what I believe makes America truly inherently different is that the origins of our society, we're going to say that we do in fact have religious freedom. We forget this, of what was going on in Europe in the 17th and 16th centuries. I mean, Protestants and Catholics were literally burning each other at the stake. There were Protestant denominations that were drowning each other in the Lake of Geneva over small, intricate theological differences. And we say, yeah, guys, you all can come here. What? Yeah, you can all come here, and we purposely say that we have religious freedom. You can express yourself any way you want. That is immensely, inherently different. 
all other nations, the best that I can really imagine, uh, excluding Canada, and some places in Europe, it's changing a little bit, but really, historically speaking, it, all other nations, this is what's really exceptional, all other nations have a common culture. All other nations have a common identity. Like, you go to China, everyone's Chinese. You go to Liberia, everyone is Liberian. You go to Norway, everyone's Norwegian. Europe's changing a little bit, particularly in France and England. But historically speaking, common culture, common faces, common eye color, common hair, common, common, common. And that common DNA, I believe sociologically and even historically speaking, binds them together. It keeps a sense of unity. We're all Norwegian. We're all Chinese. We're all this. We're all that. This is my parents, my parents, 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 going back to whenever. We've all been this, and we're all this, and we all look very similar. There's a lot of actually uh, very interesting um, sociological studies that have been done on homogeneous versus heterogeneous societies. Uh, if you are interested in that, you can talk to me after class. This beckons a question. If that commonality, that common culture, that common identity, that common DNA, in many regards have bound people groups together throughout the thousands and thousands of years of human civilization, what on earth keeps America together? We are inherently different. What keeps us bound together when I myself are part German, Czech, Finnish? That's pretty much it. And I look at a crowd and I see, and I marry an Italian who's also Ukrainian Polish. I look at a crowd and I see someone who is biracial. And I look at a crowd and I see all these people with all these different things. What on earth keeps America together? And it's this. America is inherently different because the thing that keeps us together is an idea. Not a DNA. And therefore, we are inherently different. Because the only thing that binds us together is an idea. A crazy experiment. It's written on your coins. In God we trust. It's written on your coin, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. It's written in our documents. It's an idea that governments will not abridge or take away your right to freedom of press, to freedom of religion, to freedom of expression. It's an idea that every man, woman, and child has an inalienable right before God for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'm telling you this because I see it. If anyone or all of these ideas are questioned in our society, we have nothing as a nation to hold on to. Nothing. Because our cultures are different. Our skin tones are different. Even sometimes our languages are different. So what shall bind you together? If there is an erosion 
of religious freedom, press, assembly together, speaking, liberty, life. If any of that is questioned, society goes down the tubes. Because we have nothing else. Us in Canada are the only nations that have that phenomenon. So, this week, right, and on the news, Republicans and Democrats have a rhetoric of life and liberty. And they'll take different ways to try to explain that, right? Right? Life. A baby in a womb is a life. Then, therefore, governments need to protect the inalienable rights of that being. Other approaches to, to, to that version is, of course, of the Democrat faction is, well, a right to freedom and life that a woman has the ownership of her own body. We know what the Bible says about that one single issue. Now, with that being said, when I'm using that as an example to explain to you that both parties have their ways of discussing life and liberty. But I'm concerned. Because the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I hear a lot about the rhetoric of life. I hear a lot about the rhetoric of liberty. But I am concerned that we've lost the rhetoric and the understanding of happiness. I haven't heard a politician talking about happiness. I haven't heard him talking about joy. In fact, I haven't heard churchgoers talk about joy. I haven't heard churchgoers talk about happiness. This is very, very interesting and very, very profound in our historical exceptionalism. Here it is. Thomas Jefferson, at the age of, I think, 27, was asked to pen and write the Declaration of Independence. But they're like, you're a young buck. You're smart as whip, but we need to have a peer editing group. So he writes it down in Monticello, and he owned slaves, and he raped one of them. That's a fault, right? He comes up to Philadelphia with the copy. And one of the people on his peer editing group was John Adams. John Adams says to him, Thomas, oh, this is such a wonderful document. You able to express all these ideas. It's amazing. I love it, et cetera, et cetera. But you guys may not know this, that Thomas Jefferson actually kind of plagiarized, but all the intellectuals of the day knew he was plagiarizing. Uh, John Locke, the great British philosopher, said it this way in his two treaties of government. That mankind has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. That's what he says. It's, it's, it's a copy. And the original version of the Declaration of Independence that both Jefferson and Adams absolutely were like, this is it, was... You're endowed by your creator with certain inalienable rights, them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Now, praise the Lord, 
that there is a guy who had Puritan parents and Puritan great-grandparents. He himself definitely was not practicing, but you know those things that you're taught at a young age, even if you've gone away from it, it's still there. Ben Franklin says, ah, Thomas, you know what? I don't like it. Not everyone has a desire to pursue wealth, but everyone has the desire to pursue happiness. And he changes it. Happiness, joy. The church needs that. The nation needs that. COVID-19, stock market, unemployment, racial tension, political tension. I am telling you that we need to adopt this understanding once again that it is a sacred act to pursue joy. The country needs joy. And we as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we are called to show them what joy is. And we're called to show them who joy is. Zeke, can you come on down, please? The nation needs to see it. They need to see the embodiment of joy again. They do not need to see yet again your opinion on COVID-19 or masks. They do not need to see yet again your opinion on politics. What they need to see is the infectious spirit of joy from the Holy Ghost who points all people to Jesus. That is the founding fathers without even knowing it. Without even knowing it, they were displaying a biblical truth. The pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of being able to see Jesus on the throne room of God in, in heaven. We need to see Joy again, not Christians. We have a mandate from the Lord to show mankind Him. And it happens not when you're down. It's not happens when you're grumpy. It's not happening when you're always just defaulting to politics. It happens when you show people a mirror. You're a sinner before God. But Jesus loves you and has come to save you. Do you see the joy in my life? Not your political necessary stance and not your view of masks or not masks, all that kind of stuff, although there's a time for that. But my belief is seeing things in society, that there's more focus on that, that we've lost the joy of the Lord, that shall be my strength. The pursuit of joy and the display of joy is truly a sacred act. And it comes from both an inspired text, the Declaration of Independence, and it also comes from a sacred text, the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8. I told you we get to the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Then he said to them, go your, your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
What's going on here is very interesting. Nehemiah is, is giving a prophetic word to a people that are living in bondage, to a people that are living in Babylon, to a people that are living in exile, people that do not have rights. And he's, he's telling the people that we're moving from a place of captivity into a place of inheritance. And the only way you'll be able to get through that process of difficulty is to have the joy of the Lord as your strength. And I'm here to tell you that today and this week more than ever, your family, your neighbor, your colleague, your countrymen, they need to see the joy of the Lord in you. Despite COVID, despite all and any political outcome, they need to see the joy of the Lord. Why would you want to receive Jesus if all his ambassadors do is talk about politics and all that his ambassadors do is talk about masks? That's not enticing to me. What's enticing to me is the joy that he brings. What's enticing to me is the redemption that he brings. What's enticing is the reconciliation of all things that he brings. That is enticing in the gospel. Come on, man. Joy. Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Where is the joy of the Lord to be found? It's found in the revelation of him. To pursue happiness, to pursue joy, is to pursue him. Romans chapter 14. Closing up real soon. And we're going to have some joy. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not just eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Some of us may not be able to find joy. And it may be because we might be a little too preoccupied with the work. We may be a little too preoccupied with the doing. We may even be too preoccupied with the political process. But I'm encouraging, particularly this week, this. That we occupy our minds of those things which are noble. This, with those things which are pure and holy. Those things which are heavenly and not carnal. I implore I, 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 I you to occupy your mind with those things which give joy. Jesus, the gospel, the revelation of his return and his kingdom. For all, Paul says, for all is clashing symbols if it is not with love. It's not with joy. And so this week, this election week, let me be real with you. Either you are going to need a whole bunch of joy of the Lord. Because your guy didn't win. Or the other political party is going to need the joy of the Lord because their guy didn't win. 
house said that your joy and your trust in the future of the country is in an earthly man. It's kind of funny. It's in Jesus. It's in the gospel. It's in revival. It's sharing the gospel with joy. It's raising the dead. It's putting your hands on the sick and seeing them healed. And I think this is probably an important verse for this week. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And he, God, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He removes presidents and raises up presidents. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him. Why don't we stand? Why don't we uh, stand if you can? I'm just going to close out right here. Psalm David. Interesting enough, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing Praise to you and not be silent. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be motivated to vote as a sacred act. Father, I pray that we can come out of a spirit of burden. Lord, that we can come out of a spirit of heaviness that is on this land and that may be residing inside of individual peoples. Father, I pray that there would be a resurgence in the understanding and the deep-rooted essence of the joy of the Lord. Reveal to us why we should be joyous. Reveal to us that we were yet sinners, but then we were saved by you. Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Restore to us that joy that we had that first week, that first month, that first year of being saved. Bring to us the joy of the Lord again when everyone around us is so heavy and such a Debbie Downer. Gird up our loins to see you and be a reflection of you. A reflection of the most amazing thing that has ever happened and ever will happen on earth. God healed me. God restored me. I once was blind, but now I see. I once could not walk, but now I can. Let that be 
Let that be in our spirit. In Jesus' name.